Talking with Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And there's a brand new documentary about the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle of pro wrestling in the 80s. Behind the scenes, the most riveting, revealing pro wrestling documentary I've ever seen. Uh, it's the true story, actually. It's, it's actually exactly how uh, director Fulvio Cesare describes it. Uh, Fulvio and his crew spent five years shooting interviews for this documentary, which gives a very real and candid look behind the scenes of what it was like to work in the business back in the 80s, back in the 70s, back in the day when you literally spent about 350 out of 365 days on the road traveling from town to town in a van or a car with a bunch of other guys territory to territory doing shows to make a living making towns baby Fulvio uh, interviewed 72 wrestlers for this documentary. They talked to everyone uh, from that time frame, including Bret Hart, superstar Billy Graham, Greg Valentine, J.J. Dillon, and even some legends that have since passed away like George Steele. Ox Baker is amazing in this movie. And of course, there's a few that they didn't get, and Fulvio will let us know uh, who some of those wrestlers were that turned it down and why they aren't in 350 days. He's also got some behind-the-scenes stories from their actual filming days, and you'll hear how this whole project came together in the first place. You can pre-order the documentary documentary as well on iTunes and Amazon. All the details are at 350daysthemovie.com 350daysthemovie.com It's the most revealing uh, behind the scenes look at pro wrestling that I've ever seen. I'm bringing it to you right now. Here we go. Director Fulvio Cesare uh, tells the story of 350 days and now on Talk is Jericho. Alright, so there's a big movie that's going around, uh, lots of talk about the new documentary, 350 Days, and uh, lots of buzz listed as the story of wrestling, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and um, I got Fulvio Cesare, did I get it? You got it. Cesare, Fulvio, Fulvio Cesare, um, here on the line, one of the, uh, I think you're the director of the movie, uh, one of the filmmakers behind it, uh, hooked up by our mutual friend, powerhouse Paul Lazenby, straight from Vancouver, who, by the way, is a huge son of a bitch, because I know he's probably going to be listening to this. <laughs> You don't want to no jump. comment. <laughs> uh, and just so you know, he was sodomized by a lake monster uh, in a movie that he did once, which we discussed at length. So anyways, he he was uh, talking about this, the premiere of, of the movie, which was back on July 12th, telling me all about you and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, giving me the 411 on, on this uh, documentary and very riveting stuff uh, all across the board. So first of all, Fulvio, just want to kind of get your background as a wrestling fan, and how did you get involved in making this movie, 350 Days? Well, it's a crazy thing, because uh, I wasn't a wrestling fan. Okay. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, in Montreal, actually, Canadian, hmm? and uh, just back in the 60s, and I, I used to watch wrestling back then, which would have been, I guess, Grand Prix wrestling, because I remember Bruno San Martino vividly and Andre the Giant and all that, but... Mm-hmm. That was it. But my, my dad was a, a big wrestling fan, so I'd come home from partying late at night, and there he was. He's still watching wrestling, so it was around. I wrestled in high school, but I just never followed it. So I worked on this movie, uh, Cinderella Man, and um, the technical advisor was uh, Angela Dundee, who was Muhammad Ali's trainer. Mm-hmm. And we became really good friends and wound up going to the Boxing Hall of Fame up in uh, New York State a couple times with him. And I met Darren, the other um, partner. It was his idea. I had helped him on a couple other ideas that uh, didn't go anywhere. Well, one was a pretty good idea. It was about these um, former champs making a comeback, and uh, it just didn't go anywhere. 
but he had this idea and he was a huge wrestling fan and had access to all these wrestlers. And I'm like, wow, that's, you have access to all these guys. That's pretty, um, what exactly, what, what exactly was his idea? Well, his idea was, because well, he goes to all these conventions. He, he's he's friends with, uh, he was friends with Jimmy Snuka, used to hang out with him, go to his house and the whole deal. And they, they were always talking about, you know, the life on the road and what it was like back in the day. And he's like, wouldn't it be great to tell their story? You know, what it was like back then? And like, yeah, that that's a pretty good story. Uh, and you have access to these guys. So I went to a couple of meetings with him and it was amazing. You know, he, he, there were all these, big legends from back then. I mean, even as a non-wrestling fan, I knew who, who these guys were. So I said, you know what? I should direct this for you. And so I went out and got a crew together. And on the first weekend, uh, I got uh, superstar Billy Graham, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Tito Santana. Um, I think we got a couple other guys, an indie guy. It was just tremendous. Uh, so that the first weekend went so well. And they were so honest. They were so open. Like, nothing was off the table. I and mean, Superstar was just, like, rattling off, like, things like crazy things, like, the, you know, all the, the steroids he would take. And there's, like, a, a laundry list of stuff. And I'm like, my God, this, you're on camera. You, you're telling me all drugs you used to take? And, yeah, because there's nothing to hide anymore, right? That's just, that was what they did. That was their story. And they were just so open and candid. And the thing about this movie that... I think everybody that's seen it so far, they all say the same thing. It's it's really heartfelt. It's just honest. It's just they they're just telling their story, and no matter what it is, that's what it is. So yes, the sex, the drugs, the infidelity, the 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 violence, the fights with fans, uh, the hardships, you name it, they were talking about it. Yeah, it was such a different world uh, back then because most of these guys are from the 80s because there's a whole laundry list of guys that you spoke to. But you mentioned Jimmy Snuka, Santana, Wendy Richter, uh, uh, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff is there, Bret Hart, Ted DiBiase, um, you know, Lex Luger, Abdul the Butcher, J.J. Dillon, Marty Jannetty. It's a real um, – George Animal Steel. It's a real, like I said, who's who – of of big time stars from you know the kind of the, the the golden glory period of wrestling, which is when I became a fan, which is in the eighties. But one thing I learned when I got into the business in nineteen ninety, and even now here we are in two thousand eighteen, where I'm still working in it, is those guys were on the road. And three hundred and fifty days is a great title because that is kind of uh, based on the amount of shows or the amount of travel days, the amount of time on the road that these guys used to spend on a yearly basis, correct? Absolutely correct. And here's the funny thing about that, because, uh, yes, m most of the guys we um, we interviewed, pretty much all 70s and 80s guys, but we had Angelo Savoldi, who was, when we interviewed him back in, so this, it took us five years to do this, so mm. uh, 2013, he was 99 years old. Wow. Oldest living wrestler at the time. Uh, so he was wrestling back in the 40s, you know? Yeah. Um, and we interviewed uh, Don Leo Jonathan, another superstar from like the, the 70s. Mm -hmm. I, I saw this one great picture. It's so freaking awesome. It's, 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 I mean, you, you would appreciate this because you, you'll get it. Andre the Giant, who was billed at 7'4", and he's really about 7 maybe. Don Leo was 6'9", and there's a picture of him drop-kicking Andre. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? Right. Like, holy crap. 
but he was like, he was so super famous back in the day. If you, you go to the Hall of Fame, he's like all over it. But he laughed at me when I told him, you know, we're doing this thing, it's uh, 350 days. And he's like, those guys were slackers. You know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't have a day off for seven years. <laughs> we used to have uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and we'd call those family days. So, you know, mm-hmm. yes, 350 days, that's what these guys went through. But there were some that did even longer than that. Well, and, and and like you mentioned, is it one of those things, like who was the first guy that you were able to sign up? You mentioned like Billy Graham uh, and those type of guys. Was it one of those things where once you signed a couple guys up to do the movie that everybody wanted to get involved? Because this yeah. is this is a real huge list. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what happened. Uh, everybody wanted to come on board. I mean, especially after the first weekend. I mean, I, I just had gold. Superstar was so great. And uh, Greg Valentine was, was the second one we interviewed. Uh, well, no, no, sorry. The first one was Tito. Mm-hmm. And we, we interviewed him at his wife's hair salon. Because I thought, well, how great would that be? I mean, this guy's a normal guy. He used to wrestle. He was a superstar. And now, kind of retired. Does a few you know appearances here and there. But what's he do? Well, he hangs out at the hair salon with his wife. And <laughs> so... That made sure that, uh, you know, we, we see the little old ladies in the back getting their hair done, and he's talking about life on the road while he was a wrestler. It was just awesome. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then we did the Superstar. Then we did the Greg the Hammer, and it was just it was just unbelievable. I, I, I keep saying, like, Greg was, you know, it, it, I'm sure you've met him, and he comes across as this, you know, surly kind of Yeah, very quiet, quiet. guy. Yeah. You don't want to mess with the guy, right? So we, we shot him in this... Um, this gym and it was, you know, kind of low light and he's just in the middle of the ring and it was just, it's just beautifully shot. And, um, it started off kind of, you know, pretty calm and, you know, reserved. By Boring. the end of it, we started doing all this stuff like, uh, well, is there anything else you want to do? You want to just, you know, whatever. He starts just opening up and he's like, starts doing all these moves in the ring. He starts wrestling my crew guys. He's, he's chopping me and I'm flying all over the ring. I mean, it was just awesome. You would just, you wouldn't imagine that because he was so right. scared when he first started. But I think that's, you know, the, the gist of it is that, that they were so comfortable. They were telling the story. There, there was no agenda there. They just opened up and they were themselves. Who were uh, who were some of the better guests, I guess, or, or personalities that you spoke to? And, and, and tell us a couple of the stories that really stood out for you. Like, it's impossible. I, I interviewed 72 people, mm-hmm. and, and every single one of them had something of value, right? Because I'm telling the whole story. It's not just the, the wrestlers. It's the fans. It's the historians. It's trainers. It's announcers, uh, promoters. I mean, you name it. I tried to cover as much as I could. You can only get so many in the film. Right. But of the ones in the film, the standouts, of course, are Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is just, I, can't, I just can't say enough about him. I got everything I needed from him in the first 20 minutes of, of wow. uh, the interview. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, what do I do now? It's like, you know, I read your book. Uh, it's 450 pages. I've got so many questions. And he's like, okay. He sat there. I interviewed him from, for like eight, nine hours. Wow. It's like, are you kidding me? It's like, oh, man, you are so awesome. Thank you so much. The the absolute hands-down comic relief in the documentary is Ox Baker. Mm. He was so awesome. So I, I met him at one of these uh, you know, convention signings and stuff, and um, 
went up, talked to him, told him about the project, and he's like, oh, well, I, I used to, you know, travel, and when I was on the road, I, I would cook for all the wrestlers. I'm like, now that really lit the light bulb over the head there because I produced a, a food and wine show. It didn't go anywhere, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind of really big on that. I'm, uh, I studied a lot on the, the wine industry. I worked in restaurants, the whole deal. But so I'm like, well, how about I interview you and you cook for us? Mm-hmm. He's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so that's what we did. So we have Ox Baker making a shepherd's pie while he's talking about wrestling. It's, and the fans, the people in the audience are just like, they're just eating it up. It's so, he's so funny. And uh, he kind of stays in character a little bit. And then he doesn't. And you could tell, you know, when he opens up and is really himself, it's really, it's, it's really touching. It's, um, he's really funny. Bill Eady, uh, another one, Max, Max, the superstar encyclopedic mind. He's a teacher and it just comes across. He's like a college professor. Abdullah the Butcher, where we interviewed him in Atlanta, he owned a, a chicken and rib place. So he, we interviewed him in his restaurant. And, uh, you know, another character. Every, every one of them had a really great, interesting th- uh, Lanny Paso. Mm-hmm. We interviewed him at his home, his parents' home. So there we are interviewing him. And there's pictures of Macho Man all over the house. His dad was a famous wrestler. We, we actually just didn't make it into the, the film. Maybe in the director's cut, I'll do it. But um, we went to the actual location of the crash where um, Randy yeah. passed away. And Was that in Tampa? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, we interviewed um, uh, Luke Bushwacker down there, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and some traveling. We did so much traveling. We were all over the Northeast, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, Delaware, Atlanta, Tampa, Vegas, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Los Angeles. I mean, we, I, I traveled a lot. And um, it shows we got some really great stuff. And I was so pleased by the uh, response on Thursday. I had the Hollywood premiere. We also had one in New York. And the one in Hollywood had so many uh, wrestlers and former MMA, UFC guys, actors, directors, and they just loved it. So I have a feeling that when people see it, that they're really going to respond to it. Well, it's such an interesting story, like I said, because, you know, for guys in the business today, not really understanding just how crazy it used to be, you know, and like I said, I started in 1990, so I always said I had one foot in the past of wrestling and one foot kind of in the now and in the future, and, you know, guys don't party like that anymore, as I don't think a lot of people do. I think if you look at rock stars in the 80s or, you know, comedians in the 80s, wrestlers in the 80s, the 80s was just such a decadent time with so many, you know, drugs and that sort of thing. And plus those guys were on the road so much, you know, taking bumps every night. I don't blame them for for kind of being a little bit crazy, but I just love kind of in, in some of the, the scenes that I've that I've witnessed where, you know, Bret Hart's talking about, you know, being in a, in a hotel room doing cocaine with a bunch of wrestlers, you really get to know each other. You know, and there's right. no, there's no humor in it. He's actually very serious. And did yes. you did you find like there was a lot of stories like that? Oh my god! I, like that's what I'm saying. Like the first weekend was just gold because I mean I guess the stigma is gone, right? Or they've already you know they've acknowledged it before, and so it's not a big deal anymore. But 
you know, you have Greg Valentine saying, yeah, riding down the road with uh, with Piper doing an eight ball of cocaine. It's like, I'm like, I'm sorry. Did you just say right. you were driving with Roddy Piper and you were doing eight balls of cocaine? Like, what did you just say on camera? <laughs> and yeah, then he, then he he's like, or or you know, I'm riding with Flair and drinking four cases of beer to get to the next town. And you know, this was the '80s. You know, we we're kind of pacing ourselves. It's like, oh my god, like it's just tremendous. Just and I, you know, I was born in 1960. I'm 58. I lived through the 70s and 80s. I know exactly what they're talking about. But that whole stigma and you couldn't talk about it, and, you know, the whole thing about admitting that you took steroids, the stigma of that. No, there's, there's nothing there. It's just so open. It's just, it's, it's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> were, you, were you surprised by that? I was. Uh, well, I was surprised that they would, they would come so freely. You know, like maybe, just maybe, well, okay, you know, all right, let me see, should I admit it on camera? None of that. It's like, yeah, man, I got cut steroids. That's what I had to do. You know, I had to, I had a living. You know, I, how am I going to make it to Japan if I don't start doing this shit? You know, it's like, but that's the point. Right? It's like, there was nothing to hide. You know, they talk about ring rats. Well, holy crap. I mean, that's, you know, it's groupies is what it is, but they're so open about it. Nothing was off the table. J.J. Dillon talking about how he was uh, unfaithful, you know, from the beginning. He led a double life. You know, he's been married a bunch of times, but, you know, being on the road, the women are a temptation. It's like, you realize you're on camera, right? You're, you, people are going to hear this. Yes, they're telling their story. That's what it was. That's what their life was. It was, I love that they were just so open about it. There was nothing we didn't talk about. And that the premieres and stuff, I mean, people came up to me. Even wrestlers, they're like, they, they cried. They're like, Thank you for telling the story. This is what it was like. And, you know, th that was my life. And like, wow, you know, okay. Th th well, that's what I was trying to do. I'm trying to tell your story. And the fact that they were so open and honest, I mean, that's, they want their story told. You know, and, and, and I always say that if people only knew what we have to do to make it to the show or to get that show to actually take place, they'd be blown away. And I love the the scene with George the Animal Steel when he says, you know, when people ask about being on the road, I don't tell them anything, okay? I want them to to think it's all glamorous and, and unicorns and rainbows. If they knew the real story, you know, they would never want to even think about being on the road like this. And, and another great point there, Chris, because, and you know this because you're in the biz, but how many fans out there know how dangerous it is to actually be a wrestler? I can't tell you how many of the guys I spoke to have been shot at, have actually been shot, razor blades, urine thrown on them. It's all in, it's all in the documentary. I mean, these guys, like um, Don Fargo, fabulous uh, Don Fargo, mm -hmm. 18 different gimmicks he's done. He got shot just below the knee with a 22. Davey O'Hannon, somebody sliced him with a, a barber's razor. He didn't know until he got uh, backstage, and somebody pointed out that his bicep a piece of his bicep is hanging off. Oh, my gosh. It's like, yeah. It's like, how crazy is that? I mean, sure, if you're a cop, you're going to get you know, possibly shot at, but you're a wrestler. You're going into the ring, right. and it's possible that you're going to get you know, attacked. And I can't tell you how many of them uh, talked about riots and having to use chairs to get out of the ring, to, get into the, to go back to the dressing room, the violence on their cars, how many uh, people, you know, they're, Greg Valentine, uh, Superstar, all talk about 
their cars being destroyed by the fans. It's crazy. It's just, you just wouldn't imagine this stuff from a fan perspective. And it, these guys lived it. Well, and that's the thing that, that, once again, you know, even though it was, if you're talking about the guys in the 80s, only 30 years ago, you, you know, people believed then. It wasn't as, as open as it is now that, you know, it's show business and all that sort of thing. But even in my era 10 years ago, I was attacked by fans a few times. But in the 80s, that was just the common ground. And I think Orndorff has a great scene where he says, you know, the more heat that he got and the more people he got to hate him, the more money he made. And that's just how it was. And, and the same thing with Davey O'Hannon. Like he was saying, you know, yeah, my, my bicep is hanging off here. And, you know, I just got razor blade, but I stayed in character. And, you know, you can't break the character. That means I did my job. Mm-hmm. The people hated my character. And so, you know, I was successful. And it's true, right? I mean, to be hated that much that you get attacked, but you're just playing a character. Yeah, and it's, it's just really fascinating stuff. It's very fascinating, too, especially when you, uh, you know, wrestling is not, it's, it's neither uh, fish nor fowl. You know, it's, it's show business, but it's real. You don't try and hurt each other, but you can really get hurt, you know, and, and you really have to be in it for the right reasons, especially back in those days. And, you, you know, you're talking about guys, you know, the Bret Hart story with, uh, you know, 10 guys in a van or 12 guys in a van with, you know, and but, but that's something that legitimately you know, I've experienced and a lot of guys that came into the business in the, in the nineties or, 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 you know, earlier, that was just the kind of the way it goes. It's not so much like that as uh, anymore. Um, and for better or for worse, but just to hear those stories, I think it's very surprising for a lot of people that that's actually what they had to do. Tell, tell that Bret Hart story about, about the midgets in the van and all that stuff. That was a great story. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it wasn't the only one because there's so many of them. I mean, Ted DiBiase is like, you know, traveling with a bunch of uh, wrestlers, and they have—they've just worked. They've just done their show, and they're traveling to the next city, and they don't have enough money to stop at McDonald's. So they—they'd have to get a loaf of bread and some bologna. And they call it bologna blowout. Yeah. Right. I mean, the glamorous lifestyle. But Brett—he's—he was talking about how in this one band, and there must have been like ten guys in there. And there's luggage in the back, and they traveled with the midgets, and the midgets would sleep on top of the luggage in the back. And he was saying how one time he, he still remembers that um, he's looking down at his feet and there's a head. And it was one of the midgets and he was underneath the seat. And he's like, oh, sorry, but that's, no, that's okay. Just, you know, don't, don't step on my head. And that's, <laughs> that's how they traveled. That, that was it. It's like, you know, none of this glamorous, uh, you know, flying here and there. It's like, no, it's a bunch of guys just crammed into a car or a van and you're driving however long it is, right? I mean, back then, I think there were something like 32, 33 different territories. And they talk about some of the, like the worst ones, like Amarillo was supposed to be one and New Orleans, or not New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. And then, of course, uh, Stampede Wrestling up in Calgary. And they all talk about how difficult it was uh, going there and how the drive was, you know, crazy and difficult and Superstar talks about he left Phoenix, and it's like, I don't know, 80, 90 degrees or whatever it was, drives all the way up the Rockies to Calgary, and he gets up there, and it's 50 below zero. And the shock of, you know, having gone through that, it's just crazy, crazy stuff. And um, I just don't think the fans know that. The fans just see those characters on TV, and they, they love them or hate them. 
but they have no idea what the, what their life was like. Now they do. Yeah, and 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 um, you talk to a lot of different different uh, you know types of, of wrestlers and stuff. And, and I see. Did you speak to any of the little the little people, any of the midget wrestlers? Yes. Yeah, we had uh, uh, Farmer Pete, who's uh, still around. He's uh, lives in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. And uh, it was actually really, really great because when I interviewed him, I had just interviewed um, Angelo Mosca, King Kong Mosca. Yeah. He was a famous uh, football player, but was a big wrestler also in the 60s and 70s. And they used to wrestle together. Uh, there was a famous guy, the Bear Man. And uh, there are stories about how the, the midgets uh, would, you know, grab onto the bear and all, all these great stories. But, um, yeah, I tried to be as inclusive, as thorough, everything. Male, female, black, white, midgets, old, indie, you name it. I tried to get as complete a story as I could. Because I, I, I did all my research. I mean, I, I knew it was out there, what was told, what wasn't told, how it was shot. Um, I, I got the best equipment. I hired the best people. Um, I sought out the most interesting stories, and I think I've got it. And, like I said, I interviewed 72 people, 38 of them uh, made the cut. So I've got gold for, like, a director's cut. Wow, yeah, that's that, that's the thing. If you had 70 people and you could only use 38, yeah, you got to do the extended version for sure. It would be, like, a ESPN 30 for 30, except, like, 10 weeks. Right. I have so much stuff. I'm so impressed. And we've got never-before-seen stuff. Uh, It took us a really long time to get uh, the rights to footage because, as you know, Vince owns pretty much everything. So it's Mm -hmm. it's impossible to find footage or photographs or whatever. And yet we did. Yeah, I was going to say, how were you able to do that? Because there there is Bret Hart material on there and there's – you know, footage of uh, Mr. Wonderful and, and the Kamala working with each other. How did you get that footage? I mean, that's the thing. It's just um, a lot of it is from, like you were saying, once somebody knows that somebody's on board and, you know, they come aboard, it's like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. Oh, yeah, that, that my, you know, my neighbor was a photographer, blah, 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 or hey, that museum has a, a photo. That's why it took so long. It took us five years to finish this thing and something like just two years to get all the rights to the footage and the footage is, is unbelievable. Like we have home videos of Jimmy Snuka, you know, feeding giraffes and holding a baby bear cub and giving it some milk. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, where are you going to see that stuff? Right. I mean, that's pretty cool. JJ Dillon in, in Japan in 1974. I mean, you know, wrestling in Japan in 1974. Like, we have that footage. It's, it's just great stuff. It was a long protracted thing. Um, did you actually have to contact the WWE? No. And there's some things I couldn't do. Like, I couldn't talk to some of the guys that are actually under contract to, to Vince. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just don't do that. They just don't, uh, you know, cross the lines, I guess, or, you know, work on any of their projects. Some of them are on a, a Legends contract, so maybe you can get something out of them. But not really. And from what I understand, you know, he's very protective of his 
business and brand and doesn't want any competition. Well, so no, absolutely. That, but that's why I'm I'm asking because the, the you know Mr. Wonderful versus Kamala. That's from a WWE ring, I would assume. That's when they were working with each other, right? Yeah. Well, it, I, I don't know that particular one who uh, where we got it from, but we have the rights to every single one of them. I know that there were some very, and I didn't know who they were, but you know, very well known. Uh, wrestling photographers. Gotcha. And there's um, uh, some of the stuff from fans. Uh, we we got stuff from fans, and we could use those those photos. Uh, the footage, I, I'm not sure. It could be from uh, you know some museum or whatever. I don't know that particular one because my uh, my producers they handle all that stuff. I guess it's but, one uh, of those things. If someone filmed it themselves, that you can use it. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, and there were a lot of pictures that I took on set and or, you know, during the interview and we could use all that stuff. But um, there's so much. And it, I think it's really a testament to how good this documentary is, because you just can't. It's impossible to get that kind of footage. It's just not available. Uh, that's the whole thing, right? There, there were territories and, and Vince bought up all the territories. There, there's no territories. Right. I mean, now now you can argue that, you know, it's, it's coming back, you know, the whole impact and uh, Japan and Ring of Honor, you know, those are territories, I guess you could say. But back then, systematically, he bought everyone and he owns everything. I mean, Stampede Wrestling, he owns all the rights to, to that footage. Mm-hmm. So trying to get anything with, with Brett is, is like practically impossible. But right. we did it. Just by persistence or just by uh, fear, be, beating the fear, bushes? In the true indie spirit, you know, that's like people say it can't be done. All right, we'll show you how it's done. And we did it five years. And, you know, if the reaction you know, the, the other night was any indication, um, I think we did the right thing. So, Even like in our New York premiere, we had J.J. Dillon and Greg Valentine, uh, Tito Santana. Even Bob Backlund was in, uh, was in the audience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was pretty cool. Talk a little bit about, you know, about uh, Wendy Richter because it was very interesting to me because right now the, the Divas Revolution, you know, the, the uh, women's championship, women's title, there's a big emphasis on the women in, in the WWE and in the entire business. But Wendy comes from a time when it was much more archaic and, and much more, I'd say, difficult to be a woman in the wrestling business. Totally. I mean, she beat the fabulous Moolah in WrestleMania one. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's like she is so legendary. And I, I got to tell you, one of the things I'm, I'm really most proud of uh, in this documentary, because we, we are so diverse and inclusive, is how much we have on female wrestlers. Mm-hmm. They're very well represented. Uh, we show a lot of footage. I had, I think, eight of the original Glow Girls at my premiere. Uh, they just loved the movie because, you know, we showed Wendy in such a, a highlight and she was so great, and her story was just so awesome. So, you know, the kind of classic, come from you know, poor beginning kind of thing. Like her dad didn't want her uh, doing any of that kind of stuff, right? Not, not even getting pictures taken. So what she do? She ran away from home mm. at seventeen to become a wrestler. I mean, how crazy is that? Right. right? And then, and then she's she talks about how it was such a, a lonely life because you can't have kids. She says in the in the documentary, well, "What am I going to do? Uh, you know, put the kid on the turnbuckle while I wrestle? I, yeah. I couldn't have pets. You know, it was just this was my life. It was a lonely life, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so good to me. And I would I do it again? Of course, I'd do it again. It, it's really it's great stuff. 
Yeah, very riveting um, to put this all together. And you mentioned it took five years to make it. So who was who was funding all this as you were, you know, traveling across North America to get all these interviews? Well, that's the thing. It's uh, so my my two partners. One is a boxing cut man. That that's his. That's mm. how he makes a living. The other one is a, a bartender, landscaper, and he basically put up like his life savings. And it was. You know, a little bit here. Do we have enough to shoot this weekend? You know, uh, how much do we have for this? Well, what's it going to cost for insurance and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's okay. This is a few hundred bucks here, a few hundred bucks there. I called on so many favors. Everybody, everybody and their mother. It's amazing, first of all, how many people are wrestling fans, right? And to me, it was really crazy because having been an outsider, I guess, in a sense, had no idea. So I tell people, well, you know, I'm working on this documentary. Oh, well, what's it about? Uh, pro wrestling. Really? Of course they want to jump in. I, I remember the, the very, very first guy that I approached. He was a, a cinematographer, and he was doing the work for, like, Sports Illustrated. And, you know, he was just a highly paid uh, New York guy. And I paid a third of his rate because he was a wrestling fan. Right. And he's like, he and he wanted to meet those guys, right? So it's like it was that for you know five years basically. Mm-hmm. And it was we shot a total, I think, of twenty one or twenty two days in total. But it was you know trying to get those together was difficult, and it was the travel. Uh, like I said, I rattled off a whole bunch of cities. Uh, I drove from New Jersey to Vegas just so. I can get some footage. I had like a GoPro camera in my car so that I got the feel of what it would be like traveling to territories. What's mm. it like life on the road? And um, as a matter of fact, it's so funny because I, I made it to Vegas. I went to the Cauliflower Alley uh, yeah. Club. And those guys were, were great. They were so welcoming. I got so much great stuff in there. None made it to the film, but the director's cut, I guarantee, will have lots of Cauliflower Alley. But then I went from Vegas, I drove to, to L.A., and I was with a girl, uh, my former girlfriend, stayed there for a little bit, and then we drove, I was driving back to Vancouver, where I live, and of course, my car dies, and <laughs> I had to fly home, but so my car gave its life for 350 <laughs> days. And also, do you get a little taste of what it's like to have life on the road? Oh, God. Well, the thing is, you know, I actually, I love to drive. I've driven cross-country, I don't know how many times, but, yeah, I, I mean, I, I get it. I, I totally get the, that lifestyle, how difficult it is. And and also, being an actor, I mean, I, I keep mentioning this in, in interviews and stuff, it's this newfound respect for what you guys do, because I know what I do. I'm good at what I do. I've, I've got a lot of experience, and I've been at it for a long, long time. So I'm really comfortable with saying I'm good at what I do. But I know what my skill set is. Yeah. Wrestlers, they have to be good on the mic. So you've got the improv. Right? You have to create drama. The stories could be like a soap opera. You've got these outlandish costumes. You have to be a choreographer. You have to direct your own scenes. You have to be an athlete. You have to be a stuntman. It's like it's crazy. You know, it's like there's so much there that I don't think people get. It's just, oh, yeah, you know, they're running around in the, in the ring and, you know, they're doing that. And he's, oh, that's fake and all that. It's like, you have no clue what's what's going on there, how much how much is involved. So I'm just yeah. uh, 
I'm so impressed. So, that, so did you? You mentioned that you weren't, you know, you were a fan, uh, you know, much younger, and weren't really a fan. Did you get a whole new appreciation for the wrestling business by making this movie? And what about it? The most did you appreciate? Oh, well, just what I said. I, I had no idea, you know, what was involved, the, the the depth of it, really, because back then, I mean, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't a fan, so I wasn't. Uh, privy to any of that kayfabe and stuff. I never thought it was real. You know, maybe when, in the 60s when I was a kid, I thought it was real. But So I thought, well, you know, yeah, it's just a bunch of guys and it's fake and blah, blah, blah. You know, what, what do people get out of this? And, you know, why are they even watching? And it's like, no, now that I know what's going on and what went on and how intricate it was, it's stunning to me. You know, like even the little things like, you know, when they would travel down, you know, on the road, like the heels and baby faces would be in the same car because they're best friends and they're just traveling together. But when, when they get to the town, they can't be seen together. Or mm. if they're in a restaurant, they got to maybe fight or something. You know, like ridiculous things like that to tell that story, to, to live that character. It's like, wow, I'm an actor, but I'm in character only in front of the camera. These guys have to live that. It's, it's just crazy. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm so impressed. Some similarities yep. between, you know, uh, acting and that sort of thing. I, I find, you know, playing that character and, as you know, as an actor, really dropping in. And that's kind of where you can really uh, figure out, you know, between the, 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 the great performers and the ones that are just kind of marginal. I know when I mentioned, you know, getting attacked by fans and stuff, it's because I dropped into the character so deep uh, from, you know, the acting training that I had that you couldn't shake me out of it. So there was that similarity of playing a character and really getting into it to make people believe what you were doing was legit. And how awesome is that? And that's, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because one of the main questions that I asked throughout the entire uh, thing, yeah, I would ask every wrestler, are you an athlete or a performer? And the responses I got were, were crazy off the charts, different. Mm-hmm. But but a lot of them were like, well, of course I'm an athlete, but I'm an actor. Right, telling the story, I'm entertaining. You know, so it was just, it is what it is. It, it is sports entertainment. You know, Vince McMahon said that. That's that's what they do. That is the brand, and and now people get it. But that's not what it was back then. It was real. These guys hated, you know, the the, the heels. They they loved their their baby faces. They were the heroes. Like when uh, Superstar talks about beating uh, Bruno uh, for the championship and how the riot, like the fans just, they couldn't believe what just happened. Bruno actually lost. Right. And it was a frenzy. A riot broke out. I mean, how real must it have been to these people? You know, and this was, uh, this was I think, 1977. So not even that long ago, really, if you think about it. And it's like riots because <laughs> he beat their champion. Right. No, and that's the thing. Like, you can still get people to believe it's just not as easy. But I, I remember Nick Bockwinkle told me once, the great Nick Bockwinkle said, you know, I could go into the ring and tell people wrestling, you know, is predetermined and is, is a show business uh, for 30 minutes and then go have a match for 10 and everyone would call me a liar. You know, right. people. <laughs> so wait, once you well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, uh, and Brett was mentioning, um, like uh, Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And he says that that's where he really learned about how like dangerous it could be because you build up 
the heat so much that it comes close to like a riot? Like how much do you want to build up this heat where you're putting the wrestlers in danger? Right. Right. But that's you're, you're selling that you're selling this uh, rivalry, this, this story. And you, you get the, the fans so worked up, then you got to know where to kind of, you know, pull it back a bit. And, and that's really fascinating. I mean, who knows that stuff, right? I mean, I, I can't believe I got that on tape. You know, it's like the, the education I got. Well, and that's the thing that I always enjoy when, when people like yourself say that because it is such a incredible, fantastic world that you just can't quite believe unless you're up close and personal and, and, and kind of involved in it, you know, in your own way like you were. Um, but once you finally got the documentary finished, now I, I know that your premiere, which was, like you mentioned, on July 12th, it was it was an L.A. New York thing. It was through, I think it was Fathom, who does those special one-night-only shows. You know, I remember right. I saw the big four, Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth through Fathom Distribution. Oh. How did you arrange that, and what is your plan for distribution going forward for 350 days? Well, uh, one of our producers uh, knew somebody at Fathom, and so approached them, and uh, they saw the screener. They, they loved it. They thought this would be worthy, I guess, because they only do really high-end stuff. You know, they did the Conor McGregor Mayweather right. fight. I mean, they, they're, they're just, they're doing uh, the next thing is uh, the 20th anniversary of the Big Lebowski, you know, like, re-releases of, you know, really big movies. They're, they're just high-class uh, yes. promotion. So, getting involved with them, that was just, that was so awesome. They just, you know, feather in the cap. And so, what happened was, we were at the American Film Market, in uh, L.A. last uh, November. And we had a trailer for the, the documentary, and the distributors were just freaking out. They, they all loved it. Uh, they all wanted to put it on TV right away. And we were like, well, you know, we really would like to get it into theaters. And that's where Fathom came in. And so we have this great opportunity to at least show one time in the theaters. And we did, and now... I'm actually going to try to get it into theaters in, in Canada because that was a, a U.S. showing only. And so I'd love to get it in Canada, especially because, A, I'm Canadian, mm -hmm. and I have so much Canadian content in the, uh, in the documentary. And then when you think about some of the most famous promotions like Stampede Wrestling and uh, Grand Prix and uh, All-Star, Maple Leaf, I mean, they were just classic, classic promotions, and they're, they were so famous. I mean, everybody knows Stampede Wrestling, right? I mean, you don't right. even have to be a fan, really. Everybody knows it. Um, so I got to get it out to Canada. But, uh, yeah, the idea is, you know, Showtime or HBO, it'll definitely come to TV. I, I remember somebody from Netflix, they, they were like one minute through the, the two-minute trailer, like, okay, we'll take it. And I'm like, oh, no, well, all right, thank you. Uh, but, you know, we do, we do want to get it into the theater first. Yeah. So um, it'll be coming to TV at some point. So it'll, there'll be DVD sales and all that. But um, right now I really would love to get it into uh, theaters in Canada and international. I mean, you know, documentaries, A, are a tough sell theatrically. And... You know, not everybody in the world knows about wrestling, so some territories would be, you know, maybe not that interested. But that is the whole idea of why I did it, because I want people that are not wrestling fans, people that don't know anything about wrestling, to come watch this. 
So, yeah, I, I, I want, you know, farmers in China to go see my movie. You know, I want the <laughs> Polish uh, housewives to know what it's like, you know, 350 days. People just would have no idea. I want them to see this movie. So, so when, when you did when you did step. when you did the, the the screenings in LA and New York, are you getting a box office off of that? Is that is, is that helping to no. kind of no? Well, it, well, it, it is. I mean, it's it's complicated because the Fathom gets their cut, right. the, the distributor, you know, the theater owners get their cut, and you know whatever's left gets split. I guess thrown so into we the pot. We don't have any of the totals yet. I don't know how um, how it did, but it was in I think close to four hundred theaters uh, that night on July twelfth. Oh, that's great. So it wasn't just L.A. and New York then. So it was all across America. Oh, no. no, L.A. and New York were just our premiere. Gotcha. I went all out. All out of pocket. I made sure that uh, my first feature film (laughs) had the the big Hollywood uh, treatment. So I had the red carpet. And I I had so many great people there. It was so... I had Judo Jean LaBelle. I mean... This guy's a legend. Yeah. Just absolute legend, right? And and not just as a martial artist, but his, his mom used to run the uh, Olympic Auditorium mm-hmm. and all the, the wrestling used to take place. His, his brother, who they don't talk about because he was a bit of a shady character, but it was involved in wrestling promotions uh, back then. Yeah, Mike LaBelle, um, yeah. And I, I just heard a great story uh, yesterday that... Um, because in our documentary, we have this whole segment about um, uh, Gorgeous George. It comes about uh, because of, we're talking about gimmicks, and Angelo Savoldi said that you know he was talking to George Wagner was his name, mm-hmm. and uh, he said he's you know he's come up with this uh, gimmick, and I'm going to call myself Gorgeous George. Well, I just found out that it was Jean LaBelle's mom that was responsible for that, and that actually Jean LaBelle was one of the guys. He was called a spray boy. He would be the ones that, that, that would go into the <laughs> ring spraying the perfume before uh, yeah. while George was in there. It's like just crazy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just I, I love Gene, and he's he's ninety two years old, and he was on the red carpet, and he's cracking jokes with the glow girls, and it's just he's just so awesome. You had and, some uh, you had some 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 uh, modern wrestlers there as well. I saw. I had uh, Frank uh, Kazarian, the Scorpio Sky, Chris Daniels, Shad Gaspard was the part of Prime Time. Yeah, uh, Eli Drake. I mean, the Jet was there, the martial arts legend. And uh, mean, you also had a. Uh, uh, tell us what happened with David Arquette. Oh my God, that was that was so awesome. He's on the red carpet. He's a, a friend of mine that I worked on the Supernatural TV show. He uh, he contacts me and uh, you know I tell him I'm going to be in LA. I got this premiere, a documentary, and he's like, "Hey, how about my uh, my friend David Arquette? He's a wrestler." I'm like, "What, David Arquette? I actually I actually worked on a movie with him and back in the I don't even remember the 90s or something or early 2000s." Yeah, so I looked it up and the whole WCW thing. And I right. had no idea. And he says, uh, "But yeah, he's going to be he's going to be wrestling uh, like a few days after your premiere." I'm like, What's he talking about? This is like so weird. So I did the research, and I'm like, well, that's perfect. I mean, that'd, that'd be perfect for him. You'd get a little press, and it'd be great to, to have him there. I worked with him and all that. And um, so he comes to the premiere, and he's on the red carpet, and all of a sudden, this guy shows up. And 
he basically just walks up to him and he's like acting kind of really weird. And I find out later, of course, it was uh, R.J. Sidney who's going to be wrestling him. And I, I walk up to him because I thought he was bothering Dave. And, um, and they're like, no, no, he's that guy. He's a wrestler. He's going to be wrestling. And I'm like, oh, okay, I love him. Take some pictures on there. Next thing you know, he slaps him and he takes off. <laughs> and so it, it just it made it onto TMZ. And it's got something like close to 500,000 views already. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy stuff. But, um, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And he wrestled him uh, this Sunday. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he won or not. But uh, he was he was serious about it. He's been training with Luchadoras down in Tijuana. And he was talking about how sore he was. And he was working with some other trainer that I think is a big deal. I, don't, I didn't get his name. But uh, they said, oh, yeah, he's training with that guy. Okay, that's all right. Guess he's serious about it. Yeah, well, he's like I said, he's getting back into the wrestling business. So it must have been kind of cool for you after this movie that you spent five years on. You know, the, an actual angle takes place on your red carpet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's so good. But we have to keep the kayfabe in 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 its proper uh, use, I guess. Sure, of course. But I mean, that's that's like I said, it's kind of an updated version of what the business is all about and kind of happening via your, you know, your movie, which is cool. So um, as we wind down, wind down here, Fulvio, was there uh, was there anybody that you didn't get that you really wanted? Oh, yeah. Well, the main one, the the absolute heartbreaker was uh, was Roddy. Yeah, because we were so close to getting him. Uh, Like I said, I live in Vancouver. He was in the Oregon uh, area or uh, Portland area. And uh, so I was all set to go down there and uh, getting a, a crew together. And out of nowhere, he passed away. I was like, oh, my God, that's, I, that, that, that really hurt because, I mean, not only is he such a legend, but he's so charismatic. Mm-hmm. I could only imagine, you know, what he would have added to this. So just, um, it was very, very sad. And then, of course, there's, there's some that I just couldn't get because of their relationship with, uh, with Vince. Mm-hmm. I mean, I who wouldn't want the, you know, Hulk. Right. Of course. And, you know, he's, he was so important in that era, but you, you can't, you just can't get everybody. It's, um, Flair, you know, even, even Ric Flair. Yeah. I, I actually, uh, I, I spoke to him at a convention and he said, uh, yeah, sure. You don't go contact my agent. I did. She never got back to me. So I was like, <laughs> Classic Flair. You know, like, Come on. <laughs> you know, um, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's one of those things I'm sure once they actually see it, they might go, ah, man, that would, that would have been cool to be involved in. But you mentioned Piper passing away before the movie. There's a couple guys in there who, who I think they probably had their last interviews uh, of their lives with you. Oh, I, without question. A- absolutely. Well, for example, uh, Angela Savoldi who was 99, he, he passed away just a few months after the interview. Right. Uh, Snooka, I'm pretty sure we probably got his last one. Uh, George Steele, pretty sure we probably got his last one. Uh, Don Fargo, I can probably guarantee uh, that. We interviewed him at the, the Hall of Fame when he was still in, in New York. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's... Ox uh, Baker. The Wolfman. Wolfman uh, uh, Willie Farkas, I, I found him in Toronto, mm-hmm. and he'd been kind of like you know living in obscurity, and he was so happy that you know anybody even remembered that he was a wrestler. You know, pretty sure I got his last interview. Yeah, uh, the list is endless. I mean, it was just man, I, I got I got pretty lucky for sure. I also I did my work and I, my research, and I really sought out 
as interesting and diverse a group of people. And I think it's there. I think it speaks for itself. It's, uh, I know that the wrestlers are going to love it because it's telling their story. There's no agenda. I, I keep telling people there's no WWE bashing here. I have nothing against Vince. Uh, I'm just telling the story of life on the road during the territory days. And the wrestlers from that era, they appreciate it because I'm telling their story and they're reliving it. The newer wrestlers are getting the idea of what it was actually like for those guys that paved the road for them. And then the people that don't know anything about wrestling, what an intricate you know, look at this fascinating thing that they have no idea what it's about. It's like, my God, people did that? It's like, that's crazy. Who would live that kind of life? Well, well, and that and that's the secret. That's the secret of a good documentary as well. Is you don't make it for you know the fans of of the business. You make it for the people that don't know. And that's why I love documentaries. Like even if I don't know anything about Donkey Kong, King of Kong is one of my favorite movies. Or if you didn't know anything about heavy metal, right. Anvil, the story of Anvil is still a great movie. And that's why three hundred fifty. Oh yeah. Well, that's why three hundred fifty days stands out so well because even if you know nothing about wrestling, it's so interesting that there's this segment of of of, of society that would put themselves through this, and another segment that would live or die uh, from a fan base standpoint. I agree, and I, and we have a, a mutual love of metal. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 58, and it's what keeps me uh, being a teenager at heart. Right. And, the, the, you know, the, the louder, the better. Yeah. Um, last question for you, Fulvio. Is there one story that's your favorite in the documentary, one that stands out that, that you, you enjoyed more than the others, even because of the, the, the background behind it? No. Um, what sticks in my mind more is, is the, the wrestlers themselves. Because the, the stories are pretty diverse, and they, they're all great stories. And... Um, you know, they cover everything, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, but it's the actual people themselves. And like, for example, I keep mentioning this because it still blows me away. So Don Leo Jonathan, again, this guy was super famous as a wrestler back then. His dad was a, a famous wrestler as well. He wrestled as the, the Mormon giant. Um, but when he retired from wrestling, he was best friends with Jacques-Yves Cousteau. You remember Jacques-Yves Cousteau? The, the underwater guy, yeah. you know, the, the, the documentaries about, you know, underwater. Well, Don Leo was uh, instrumental in the building of these suits that you wear underwater. He, he used to work in the oil rigs, like underwater welding and stuff. Like, just crazy stuff. And then he's, he's a big game hunter. He, he is a master... Uh, knife maker. He makes museum quality knives. And if that weren't enough, well, the, the leather sheath that it goes into, he's got to make his own leather sheaths and they're like, you know, museum pieces. It's like, what an interesting guy. Oh, wait, what? He was a wrestler? It's like, <laughs> it's just, it's just interesting. Just really, really, people don't get that, right? It's like, you, you look at this guy, who's that six, nine, you know, big lunk and, you know, what's he doing? This pretend stuff. It's like, no, interesting, complicated, intelligent, fascinating people. Just, well, it's, I'm just so glad I get to meet these guys. And like, you know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people don't remember Don Leo, but one of the things when I, when I spoke to, uh, to Brett, and I think it was kind of like what sold him, I told him, you know, that I was in Vancouver and uh, I interviewed uh, Don Leo. He was like so happy about that because he's like, 
it's so good that you're you're keeping uh, those guys' memories alive, and he was such a great guy, and blah blah blah. I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. Bret Hart likes the fact that I interviewed Don Leo. It's like, oh man, <laughs> awesome. So yeah, it's uh, it's really the people. That, yeah, I got to know them. I, right. I got to sit down with them, and they they told me their lives, and it wasn't like bullshit. It was just the reality, and we're, we're saving it for posterity, and that was just great. Yeah, man. Like I said, the, the the clips that I've seen, the scenes that I've seen have, have been amazing. And I wasn't able to make the premiere, but I'm really looking forward to watching the whole thing once it's uh, ready to go and, and distributed. And I think uh, everybody listening is going to want to check it out, too. So, Fulvio, thanks, man. What, uh, what a great piece of, of film that you've made. Congratulations. I thank you so much. And uh, Fozzie rocks. <laughs> thanks, man. I appreciate it. Next thing you, you, next you can do a Fozzie documentary. I would love to. We'll, we'll <laughs> Fozzie on the road, man. That uh, sounds good. There you go, man. Thanks a lot, Fulvio. We'll see you down the road by ourselves, buddy. Okay. Appreciate Cheers, it, man. Chris. Thank Thanks. You. Bye. You can pre-order 350 Days at iTunes and Amazon now, and you'll be among the first to see it when it comes out on April 2nd. I watched it, and there are a lot of great stories about what it was like to work the territories and literally live on the road traveling from city to city 350 days a year. If you want to pre-order, you can find all the links at 350daysthemovie.com. That's 350daysthemovie.com. And don't forget part two, uh, the, the Rock and Wrestling Razor at Sea Second Wave is officially on sale today. Uh, the, uh, the, the pre-sale was crazy. Crazy, uh, almost sold out just in the pre-sale, but there are some cabins left, and those go on sale to all of you, all the uh, non-pre-bookers. Now, go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com to book your cabin. We're setting sail again next year, January 20th to the 24th on 2020. Why well, there's a lot of 20s? Because this vacation will be 20 times better than any other vacation you've ever had, and I want you to be there along with, check this out, AEW, already on board, Fozzie is going to be playing three shows, uh, Brad Williams is the host, he was one of the... Uh, the hits of the cruise last year. Very funny comedian. Vicky Guerrero is this year's guest cruise director. Um, we also got Jake the Snake Roberts will be there. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page will be there doing uh, yoga uh, for sure. And of course, I want the addition of Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Sean Waltman, the Wolfpack, the NWO, however you want to slice it, they are there. Comedian Bruce Jingles will be here. This guy reached out, uh, wanted to come on the cruise. I checked him out. He was hilarious. Uh, we have Rubik's Cube, the ultimate 80s tribute. What a lot of fun there. One of the greatest 80s shows you'll ever see. Plus, Farewell to Fear, great uh, original band, and Fozzie, like I mentioned. So much going on. Beyond the Darkness is going to be there doing paranormal experiments, just like they did last year when they tried to raise the UFOs from the bottom of the ocean. And boy, did some weird stuff happen. Listen, this is just the start. So much going on. Tickets on sale today. Cabins on sale today at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Don't miss this. It's going to be the vacation of a lifetime. Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rage at Sea, Part 2, the second wave, January 20th of next year from Miami to the Bahamas. All right. Coming up on Friday, speaking of, uh, of Miami to the Bahamas, I'm not sure if this guy's ever been from the Miami the Bahamas, but I know where he has been uh, as, as the top star of the television world back in the 70s, one of the biggest bodybuilders of all time, and of course the original Incredible Hulk. Talking about Luke Ferrigno is going to be here talking all about his rivalry with Arnold Schwarzenegger, his uh, rise to the top, and his iconic portrayal of the Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, on Friday. So we'll see you then. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah! Boy, and we'll see you on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rage and Sea Part Two.